the Sunday morning before Christmas. Christmas is always that time of year when people are asking questions again, and some folks who haven't been asking questions all year begin to ask them. Who is Jesus? Is this real? Was he a real person? Was he truly the Son of God? Is this virgin birth a reality or just a part of a story that somebody made up to try to make it seem more special? Those are the questions that are always being asked. Every year I find myself, and I've told you before, I love Christmas music. But I love singing some of the songs, and one of those songs is, What Child Is This? It, it asks such an amazing question. Who is he? Who is he really? Not, not just in the sense of historically, but who is he in the spiritual sense? Who is he in your heart, in my heart? We sang this song a week ago, I believe, maybe two weeks ago, but I always go back and look at these lyrics. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? We talk about Jesus as a king, and yet he wasn't born in a palace of a royal line, but not a ruling family, not born in a palace, but rather born, if we want to put it in modern context, in a barn, not placed in a fine, beautiful, ornate, hand-carved crib, but rather in a feed box. Those who first learned of him and came were shepherds. Some of the people that society looked upon as being probably about as low a class as you could get, just barely above the beggars, they resided in fields most of the time, they watched over their flocks, they, because of that they didn't attend worship regularly, they, they didn't carry out the ritual washings and cleansings that were so much a part of Jewish life. People wonder, why would the Son of God come in such a place to such a people? Could he really be who he said he was? This morning, I want us to look at a very, well, what some people would call unchristmassy passage of Scripture. In Philippians chapter 2, if you've got your Bible, I want to invite you to turn there. The Apostle Paul through his words, inspired by the Spirit of God, gave us a portrait of the nature and character of Jesus Christ. This morning, I don't know how you would identify yourself. But I'm going to go ahead and be open and honest if that's okay. I identify as a Christian. As such, what that means is I'm a follower of Christ. I study his words. I study the writings about him. I study his teachings and those who have written about him and given us their teachings so that we might know better how to follow him and to emulate in, our, our, in him our behavior, our thoughts, our attitudes, and our actions. I want to be more like Jesus. If you call yourself a Christian, that ought to be your goal. To be more like Jesus. 
If we're going to do that, we have to identify with him, right? How do you do that? Well, let's, let's see how Paul says Jesus identifies himself. And then we'll work from that point. Okay? Philippians chapter 2. If you've got that, find verse 5. Once you have verse 5, if you can, Will, I'm going to invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy word. Here's what Paul says of this Jesus. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's who my Jesus is. Pray with me. Father, I thank you this morning for your word, for the clarity that it gives as we struggle and wrestle with the questions that all of humanity has wrestled with for decades and centuries. What child is this? Who is Jesus really? Thank you for giving us clarity. Thank you for giving us insight. And I pray that as we spend these next few moments together, you would teach us how we might better identify with him if we are going to carry his name. Now teach us your truth, Father. We're ready to listen and learn, for we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. I found these words intriguing in Philippians chapter 2. It's it's. Well, it's set apart. It's written a little differently. Many, many scholars have told us that these words penned here in verses 5 through 11 are not actually just verses, but, but that this is actually a first century hymn of the church that Paul recorded the lyrics to here and that it was being used commonly. I, I don't know if that's true or not. I, I don't know that much about music, but I do know this. This is a passage that we can identify as a Christology. It is a summary of the doctrine of Christ. If you want to know who he is, if you want to know what he is, if you want to know how he does, this is what you want to look at. These words represent the condescension of Jesus. I talked about this a week or two ago. How he condescended. He came down from glory. He came down from heaven. He abandoned his majesty to come down here and be among us for a while. When he was born, as I told you before, he identified with the shepherds. And, and he, he, he put himself out there among the masses. It didn't matter where people were at on the social ladder. He didn't care. He came to serve mankind. And Christmas is a great time. For us, I'll put it this way, for me, you can come along with me on this little journey if you'd like to, but this is a great time for me 
to stop and look at who Jesus really was and what he did so that I can know better how to identify with him. And this morning, I just want to share with you a few thoughts that have kind of poured themselves together in my head as I looked at this passage of Scripture. If we're going to identify with Jesus... What's that going to mean? What's that going to to look like? What are we going to have to do in order to better identify with Jesus and bring glory to his name if we are going to call ourselves Christians? Well, the first thing that came to my mind, the first thing that I thought, boy, you know, I got to watch myself on this, is that we are going to have to identify with Christ in his humility. We have nothing to be proud of except Christ Jesus. We need to identify with his humility. A lot of people don't understand Jesus' attitude displayed humility and submission. Those aren't words we usually use when we're talking about royalty, are we? I mean, when we talk about people who are in power, people who are in control, people who... How many of you are familiar with the word sovereign? Jesus is God. God is sovereign over all. To be sovereign means you don't answer to anybody. You are in charge of all things. Jesus is sovereign, and yet he submits himself and humbles himself. He humbles himself to live among us, to come and be like us, to walk the same dirty roads and the same dusty earth that we walk. He did it in submission to the will of the Father. You see, before earth was ever created, before the first day of creation, God already knew what was going to happen with mankind. He knew that sin was going to come in. He knew there was going to be a need for a redeemer, for someone who could pay the price and atone for sin and buy man out of sin back into a relationship with his creator. And so it was already determined the Son was going to be the one. And the Son submitted humbly to the Father's plan. To do this, he had to humble himself from his position. He stepped off of his throne in glory. And he came to be with us. We read several weeks ago from John chapter 1, how John described this is so, so magnificent. But if you study the gospel, you see Jesus in, in his earthly life, humbling himself to associate with With all people. He didn't just hang out with the upper crust, folks. I just want you to know something. In fact, it seems like he was probably more comfortable with the down and out. He was perfectly at home with those that the world rejected and pushed aside. A lot of those same folks that, let's just get down and get personal, all right? The same folks that perhaps you and I might drive by and say, oh, I'm not going to look over there. They might catch my eye. I'm not going to stop and talk to them. Who knows what they're going to say or how they're going to act or how they're going to behave. Those are the people that Jesus sought out. Those are the people he spent his time with. Those were the people that he realized the Son of Man came to seek and save. And Paul says his humility was clearly demonstrated. Look at verse 7. When he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now I want to clear something up. I don't know what y'all watch on TV. I know what I watch and I know what I will not watch. And there are things that are on our televisions today that I refuse 
to put through my eyes into my brain. So I find myself with a lot of shows that, I, you know, you kind of scratch your head and say, I'm not sure about this, but I was watching a show on the History Channel earlier this month. Now, I know some of y'all don't watch the History Channel. It's what old guys do. And they were talking about Jesus, and they had all these theories about Jesus, who he was, who his father actually was. Now, I just want to stop right there and just tell you something. God's Word makes it perfectly clear who his father was. And that which is conceived in you, the angel told Mary, is of the Holy Spirit. Okay? God the Father, I don't know how it all works. I can't give you an explanation that will satisfy you from a scientific standpoint. I'm just going to tell you, the virgin was with child and gave birth to a son. And then there's this whole thing of, well, he didn't know who he was. And and he's growing up and he's trying to figure it out when he went to the temple and got lost there. And and he knew that there was something between him and God, but he really didn't understand what that was. And and he's trying to figure it all out and he keeps growing up. And then he goes down to the river and and he's baptized by John, whom he might have met earlier, but he wasn't 100, we're not 100% sure whether he did or not. But he's baptized, he comes up out of the water, the the heavens open up, there's a voice, there's a dove. And Jesus says, aha, now I know who I am. And I'm watching all of this, and I'm just wanting to pull my hair out. I haven't got much, folks. It's a sacrifice. Let me just go ahead and clear up for you the confusion or any heresy that you might have absorbed through your TV screen, your computer, or any other literature you might have read. On the day that Mary conceived child... He was God. Throughout the duration of her pregnancy, he was God. When he was born in Bethlehem and placed in that manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, he was God. Now, whether he understood everything he was about from the time he was a small little tyke, I can't tell you, but I'm going to tell you this. He was God. And he grew up, we're told that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And he was God. And when he went down to the Jordan, he was God. And you know what? By that time, he would pretty much figured it out. John said, I shouldn't be baptized. You ought to be baptized. Oh, he said, no, no. This is what we have to do in order to fulfill righteousness in the sight of God. He called him my father. He was God. Throughout the course and duration of his ministry, through the healings and the miracles and the teachings, and he was God. And when he went to the cross, he was still God. And when he bled out and he died on that cross and they removed that body, oh, he was dead. But I want to tell you something, that body, that was still God. But God had stepped away. But God didn't stay away. Because of his love for man, God would not stay away. And on the third morning, that body stood up and walked out of that tomb. And can I tell you something about the the body that emerged? It was God. From beginning to ending, Everywhere in between and even today, he is God. 
He humbled himself. Why would he go through all of that? Because he humbled himself. That's what Paul said in verse 7. He took upon himself the nature of a servant being made in human likeness. In verse 8, he says he humbled himself. He humbled himself. That was what was required in order for our redemption to occur. So if I want to identify with my Redeemer, I have to humble myself. I have to to identify with him in his humility. See, it shouldn't be any big surprise when we read Jesus saying things like, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow. What's he saying? Identify with me in my humility. If we are to deny ourselves and follow Christ, we must identify with him in his humility. But it doesn't stop there. You see, if we want to identify with Christ, if we really want the fact that we say we're Christians to mean something, then we also are going to have to identify with Christ in his obedience. Now, this is one of those tough ones because here's the reality. Obedience means that we submit to a higher authority. How many of y'all like to submit to another authority? Oh, come on, people. I can keep you here all day long. I am in control in this building right now. It'll start as a trickle because nobody wants to be the first one to get up and walk out. And I know when somebody starts, all the rest of you will follow, but I can keep you here longer than you planned on. Do you know why? Because I'm in authority in this room. None of us like to submit to authority. Case in point. Where's Andrew at? Oh, right there in the middle of them. Yeah. Am I telling the truth? Do students, no, do students struggle with authority? Yes. I don't even have to ask you. Parents, do your children struggle with authority? Yeah. Yeah, y'all are all not, oh yeah, I see some of the young parents saying, oh yeah, yeah, they do. I'm tell- the apples do not fall far from the tree. You see, we all struggle with authority. Even those of us that are parents and slash grandparents or great-grandparents can look back and remember the times when we struggled with rebelled against authority in our own lives. You see, it's part of our human condition. So learning to submit in obedience is a difficult thing for us. In a single statement, Paul described our Lord's obedience In this fashion, look at verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming, get this, obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Now remember what I said a moment ago? He was God. God is not dead. God does not die. But when he put on flesh, the flesh that he put on could die. And Paul tells us he humbled himself and became obedient unto not just death. I mean, it wasn't, listen, he didn't get pneumonia and pass away quietly. He didn't get cancer and slip off over. No, 
No, listen, we can talk about all the different ways to die on another dime, okay? Right now, I want you to understand something. He came obedient, obedient unto death, even death on a cross. The most cruel, sadistic fashion that man has ever conceived of by which to take a human life. He said, bring it on. I'll take it. I'll suffer so they don't have to. How can you be that obedient? How could he possibly be that obedient? The answer is right here. Read the Gospels. Read about how many times Jesus went off by himself to spend time alone in prayer, in communion with the Father. I mean, he left the crowds. He left. He didn't hang out with his friends. didn't take his friends with him. He didn't take his friends with him until he went to Gethsemane, and they kept falling asleep on him, all right? When he went off by himself, he went by himself to spend time with the Father, and we told that he would pray, sometimes all night. Why was he doing that? Because he wanted to know the mind of God for his ministry. And listen, there's a difference between the obedience of Jesus to his Father and ours. Our struggles with our sinful nature. And by the way, I don't care who you are, I don't care how long you've been a believer, it's still there. You're still fighting that battle, new man versus old man, the redeemed versus the renegade. Even when we know what God's will is for our lives, sometimes we struggle to live it out. Here's a reality about Christians. I'm one of us, by the way. I hope you're one of us as well. But can I tell you something about Christians? No matter how wonderful they might be, how glorious their smile might be, or how many times they say praise the Lord to you or whatever, I want you to understand something about your Christian brothers and sisters. When you pass them, whether you're in a hallway here at the church, whether you're on the parking lot, whether you're in the grocery store, whatever it is, whenever you pass a fellow Christian, you are walking past a civil war on feet. There's a battle that goes on inside of us every day. Between that which is righteous, the Spirit of God indwelling us, and that which is our flesh that never wants to give up. See, Jesus' struggle was a little bit different than ours. He knew clearly and perfectly the will of the Father for himself, and he obeyed it. He was tempted like we are, but he never gave in to sin. I've often wondered, where was the greatest struggle for Jesus? You say, well, there wasn't a struggle. He was God in flesh. Yes, but he was in flesh. There was a struggle. That's the reason that Satan came and tempted him in the wilderness after his baptism. And he was tempted, but he did not sin. Throughout his life, throughout his ministry, you know that those temptations arose. Think about, oh wait, I'm going to put myself out on a limb here. Think about the things that tempt you. Don't say them. But here's the reality. We all know the things that tempt us, don't we? We do, if we're honest. If we're not honest, well, you're beyond help right now from me. You need Jesus. We know what tempts us. But those things he had never experienced. 
We know what tempts us because we know the things we have done, the things we have tried, the places we have been, the things we've done. And we wish, oh man, I wish, no, hope nobody knows about that. Well, he already does. But he never experienced that. He never surrendered to temptation in any way. Where was his greatest temptation? You study his life and you read the accounts and I know that he was tempted in the wilderness after he'd been baptized, but you know where I, I, I put my finger down? I think his greatest temptation was at Gethsemane. Hours before the crucifixion. Knowing what was ahead of him. Knowing that it had to happen knowing that the only way for mankind to be bought back, redeemed from their sin and handed back to the Father was for him to go through that. And yet at the same time, knowing it was going to hurt like the devil. He didn't want to experience it. He cried out to God and he said, Father, if there's any way to accomplish your purpose and let this pass from me, let it happen. I don't want to drink from this cup. I don't want to feel this. I don't want to experience this. But there was no other way. And so he obeyed. He submitted and he obeyed. And he bore that weight of sin for us. Listen, we're not asked to carry that kind of weight. But we are asked to be obedient and to submit. And if you want to identify as a Christian, if you want to identify with Christ, you need to identify with him in his humility and in his obedience. And if you do that, if we do that, if I do that, then we are given the opportunity of identifying with Christ in his glorification. Was he glorified? Yeah. But there's still so much more to come. You see, whenever you read the Gospels, here's what you come to understand. Man did his worst, then God did his best. After God allowed man to crucify his son, to unjustly put him to death, in the most cruel manner that man had ever discovered, devised, or perfected, then God defied the natural laws of death and raised his son from the grave. You see, the empty tomb announces he's not here. He is risen just like he said. That's the glory shout of our faith. And then, in majesty and splendor, Jesus ascended into the heavens. And today, he's seated at the right hand of majesty, and he lives to make intercession on behalf of us, his children, forevermore. But what did Paul say happened? Got your Bible open? You need to look at this. Arriving in the presence of his Father in heaven... He was glorified. Paul says in verse 9 that God gave him the name which is above every name. Name. I, is it the name Jesus? Is it the name Lord? Is it the name Yahweh? Is it, is it Jehovah? I, I'm not sure what name it is, but I do know this. Whatever name you call him by, there is power in the name of Jesus. 
And he is exalted. He is given total lordship. He was given the name which is above every other name. There is no other name that compares in power. There is no one else who can be called sovereign over him. There is no other who is as exalted as he is. But God didn't stop there. Paul says there's further evidence of Christ's glorification by the Father. You know what that is? Look at verse 10. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. You see, there is a time coming when every knee will bow before Jesus. Here's the reality. Those who bow today can be saved, can be born again, can be bought back from their sin and into the kingdom of God. But those who wait until this day being described here by Paul... This day in the future when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. If you wait until that day, it will not be a bowing and a confessing in repentance and humility, but rather it will be an admission of the true identity of Jesus Christ, an admission that will be immediately followed by eternal condemnation. Man, this is what you came to hear about right before Christmas, isn't it? Listen to what Paul says he concluded in verse 11. And every tongue, every tongue. Now I want you to pause on that for a minute. Think about every tongue. Skin color don't matter. Nationality does not matter. Political affiliations do not matter. Male, female, or whatever you might think you might be. It doesn't matter. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It doesn't mean that it's going to save them. No, if they've rejected Christ, there is no salvation in that. But they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you know why? Because they're going to do it to the glory of the Father. They are going to acknowledge God was right, I was wrong. This Savior. Born in poverty, rejected by his own people, will one day be universally recognized in his glory. Even those who spend their entire lives saying, well, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in this Jesus thing. I just like Christmas because I get a day off from work and people give me stuff. Oh, even people who, who function at that level are going to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you read over in the book of Revelation, here's what you're going to find. Those of us who have identified with him in his humility and in his obedience will be identified with him in his glorification. We will reign alongside him in his kingdom. So I guess I have to go back to the question. What child is this? Who is Jesus? What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping. What child is this? Oh, then there's the chorus. The refrain. This, this is Christ the King. Whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him laud the babe, the son of Mary. Christ the King. 
as the prophet said, he is Emmanuel. God with us. What child is this? This is my Savior. Who he is to you, only you know. But if you can't look me in the eye this morning and say, he's my Savior, I want you to hear me. This. This is Christ, the King. There is no other. Kings on this earth will come and go, but there is one sovereign who has come. He has gone. He will come again. That's who we're waiting for. That's who we're celebrating. And that's who I would love to introduce you to this morning. He came as a child to bring the blessing of God's love, forgiveness, and the gift of eternal life. But it must be received by each person individually. We can't do it as a group. I can't do it for my family. Every individual makes this choice. And if you've chosen Jesus, I hope that you'll look at these verses in the days ahead and realize that there's a call here to humility and to obedience as we walk in Christ. But if you've not identified with him, I want you to know this morning that God loves you. He has a plan for your life. That's the reason Jesus came. But you'll never experience that plan until you come to the Father in repentance and faith through His Son, Jesus Christ. Maybe today you're saying, man, I'd like to do that. I, I don't know how that works, but I, I need that. In a moment, we're going to stand together and we're going to start singing a song. I'm going to invite you. If you want that, if you need that, would you just come and take me by the hand? I will not embarrass you. I will not put you on the spot. But I'd love to visit with you and show you how you can become a child of God today. It will be the greatest Christmas gift you have ever received. And there will never be another one that tops it. Are you ready? What child is this? You decide. Let's bow our heads together. In just a moment, we're going to stand together and sing that song. I, I want to invite you. I want to invite you, if you do not know that you have a personal relationship with your Heavenly Father, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you've never acknowledged Him, would you do so today? I'd love to just visit with you. I, I will not. I promise you, I won't put you on the spot. And I won't force you or try to force you to do anything. This is between you and Him. But if you'd just come and tell me, Preacher, I want that. I just want to share with you from the Word of God how you can become His child today. Maybe you're sitting here saying, I already am. Awesome. That's great. You need to rejoice in that. You need to tell others about that. You need to share that. Are you doing it? Why not? Maybe God's laid someone on your heart this morning. You say, man, I wish they had heard this. Okay. What are you going to go tell them? Tell them about your Jesus. Tell them what child this is. That this celebration is not about all the other stuff and fluff. It's about Jesus. And his name is above every other name.
would you call on him? Father, I thank you this morning for your word. I thank you that you gave us a historical record of the coming of your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, sometimes we we struggle to to get our focus right. We struggle to lock in on the fact that this is about Jesus. It's not about all the other stuff, the lights, the sounds, the smell, the, the ribbons, the bows, the papers, the stuff. This is about Jesus. This is about a night when the love of God reached down into a sinful world and once and for all transformed history. Father, I pray that you would focus our hearts and minds on that truth. I know that there's someone in this room who doesn't know you. I don't know who they are, but they do, and you do. Father, I pray you draw them to yourself. Just give them a longing in their heart to know this Christ child, to learn his ways and to walk in them. And Father, if we can be used to assist in that, we'll rejoice in it. Father, this is about you, loving the lost, calling them to yourself. So I pray that as we sing, our hearts would hear your voice as you call and lead. Have your way in our lives, Father, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.